doing this sermon series called You Asked For It, where people you know, submitted questions. We went with the questions that were most submitted, and so uh, this is the question of the day. Usually when I uh, preach, you know, when you're taught to speak, you're taught to do an inter- introduction, try to introduce a subject, and uh, get people's attention, and set it up, and all those kind of things. Well, I don't know that this requires a lot of effort to get people's attention, and um, don't have a lot of time, and so this might be the shortest introduction you've ever heard me do if you've heard me preach for a while. So I, I want to give you three statements, okay, and then we're just going to kind of dive in and um, try to answer the question. So first of all, I believe my job and goal in this time, really any time uh, that I'm preaching, is to speak the truth in love. And uh, I, I do love you, I do care about you, and uh, I believe that us living in accordance with God's truth is what is best for us. Second, uh, I'm going to ask you to kind of listen carefully to the whole message, uh, take it in the context of the whole message, and reason along with me. I, basically, I'm asking you to think for about 50 minutes today. And I know that may be a little challenging on a Sunday morning. Uh, we don't necessarily always like to think. I mean, we live in a soundbite society, you know, 140 characters on Twitter, TikTok videos, but. Uh, I've got confidence in you. We can kind of think through this uh, together uh, biblically. And third, we believe as a church that um, our ultimate authority is Scripture. And so the question is, you know, what does God say in His Word? And, And I would just say that, you know, if you're a Christian, if you say that Jesus is your Lord, that by saying that, we are part of what we're committing to, even like, you know, in the, the baptismal confession of Jesus is Lord, uh, part of what we say when we say that is like, Jesus, you're my boss, you're the authority for my life, and we believe it's through his word that uh, that's how he expresses his authority. So I would just say to us, if you're a Christian, we don't get to pick and choose. Now, I would also say, if you're not a Christian yet, we hope and pray that you'll become one, but until you are we don't expect you to act like a Christian. We don't expect you to believe the same things we, that we do. I don't believe it's right for uh, Christians to judge non-Christians for their lifestyle. I don't believe Christians should expect uh, non-Christians to live like Christians. Um, that's moralism. That's not the gospel. So uh, I, I hope that's kind of set you free just to listen and consider, to think about who Jesus is. Is the Bible, the Word of God, is this true? Does this, and and uh, what we're going to see in this message What's true is what corresponds to reality. So what corresponds to reality? Okay, so with that said, let me restate the question. We'll try to dig in. The the, the question, and and we had this question come in more than once, and we kind of combined it together for it to say, how should I relate to people, particularly family and friends, who identifies LGBTQ+. Basically, we're going to look at issues of gender sexuality today. Uh, So... The way I want to approach this is I'm going to try to answer this question biblically, uh, help us maybe to reason through it a little bit. So I want to give you six uh, statements today. Some will hit pretty quickly, uh, a couple will camp out on a little bit, and really I want to start by following up, uh, connecting this back to the message last week. So number one, how should I uh, relate to people who identify in this way? Uh, First of all, I would say we should relate to all people, everybody as people made in the image of God. That's really how we're to view all people. Uh, I mean, we talked about this last week. 
that this is our identity. They were all made in the image of God, so that means that everyone has inherent value, dignity, and worth. We're loved by God. We're called to love uh, each other. So Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so I just want to reiterate the uh, definitions that I used last week. I believe identity is who we are, which I believe is who God made us to be. Our self-image is who we perceive ourselves to be, how we view ourselves. We talked about last week, it could be right or wrong, it could be healthy or unhealthy, but we all have some kind of self-image. And our self-esteem is how we feel about who we see ourselves to be. So, let me apply this to the topic at hand. And so what I believe is, and you can, you can disagree, but I want to make this case today, is I believe that someone who identifies as homosexual, non-binary, transgender, I mean, whatever uh, the situation is, I don't believe that's an identity. I believe that's a self-image. I, I, I want to try to show you in, in that in Scripture today. There's a lady named Rosaria Butterfield who is a converted lesbian professor and author, a pretty well-known scholar who said this. She said, lesbianism is not something that reflected who I am, but it distorted who I am. So I don't want to put a label on anybody other than made in the image of God. Any kind of label. Second, we're all sinners in need of a Savior, and Jesus is the Savior who will forgive and transform us. You see, I I want us to come out of this message today seeing that we're all in the same boat. We're all sinners. We're all guilty before God. We may sin in different ways, but one sin is not better or worse than another sin. Sin is just sin. Now, and this can probably cut a couple of different ways in that, um, you know, there, there's a push to discount what we're talking about as sin. But I think there can also be a push in the other direction uh, to uh, condemn people that this is their particular sin and excuse other sins. We're all sinners. I mean, Romans 1 deals with people who are kind of out there sinners. Romans 2 deals with self-righteous sinners. Parable of the prodigal son does the same thing. Uh, the, the older brother was like a Pharisee. The younger brother was a party animal. But they were both away from the father. And that's the issue. Sin, sin. But Jesus is the Savior for all sinners who will repent and trust him. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. It's not saying if you've ever done this, uh, you can't go to heaven. It, it, it's just saying until you come to Jesus, if, if we're living in those sins, but it names a bunch of different sins. But he says in verse 11, this is the good news, and such were, were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. I, we had a friend in seminary, his name was Eric, who had been a practicing homosexual who got saved and 
then he got married and had a couple of kids. And he would say, this is who I was, but this is who Jesus has made me to be. So here's the second statement. We should relate to all people with love. Period. Not make fun of people, not talk down to people, not insult people, not hurt people, not reject people. Uh, but love all people. We don't have categories of people. If everybody's made in the image of God, if we're all sinners, we're all in the same boat, we're human beings. We're to love and to care for each other. Why would I say that? Well, here's what the Bible says, Romans 13, starting in verse 8. It says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. And in the context, part of what he's talking about is paying our debts. So really what he's saying here is we're supposed to pay our debts, except there's one debt you can never pay off. And that's the debt, the obligation to love. I don't want anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So, how do we relate to people who are LGBTQ? We relate to them as people, so we love as people made in the image of God, so we love them. Okay, number three. Now, this is kind of where the rubber is really going to begin to meet the road. Um... Because I really think what, how you respond to this third statement will determine how you respond to the, to the rest of the message. This third statement is still foundational, and then the fourth statement will really uh, kind of dig into these issues. But uh, the third statement flows out of the second statement. It really comes from the same uh, verses that we just read, and that is love requires that we speak the truth to people. Love requires that we speak the truth to people. Now, why would I say this? Uh, well, look at what it says. It, 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 three things I want to point out to you from Romans 13, 8 through 10. One, love is the summation of and fulfillment of the law, so it is impossible to separate love and morality. Now, this is important because if, it, if you can separate love and morality, you can justify anything by saying it's done out of love. Now, you may not agree with that statement, but I believe it's true. For example, if you have a 53-year-old man who wants to have sex with a 9-year-old girl, and they say they love each other, if that moral reasoning is true, how can you ever say it's wrong? If there's not morality attached to love. Look at what it says here in verse 9. It says, The commandments, you shall not commit adultery. Well, when it says you shall not commit adultery, uh, what's what's it saying? Well, you can't commit adultery and love people. Well, think about it. You say, well, the the person, uh, these two people are having sex, and we're having sex because we love each other. But if you're married, you're not loving your wife, you're not loving your kids, you're not loving your family, you're not loving uh, your church if you're committing adultery with someone. So, listen, I think sometimes we get intimidated. We don't want to say say to people that you don't love somebody. And, And listen, I'm not saying you don't have feelings of love. 
I'm just saying this is how God defines love. Clearly, you can't love somebody and murder them. You're not loving somebody while you're stealing from them. You can't love somebody and covet what they have because you want to take advantage of them. What about, it says you, you shall not bear false witness. You can't love somebody and lie to them at the same time. Lying is a form of self-love. Lying is usually a protective mechanism or it's a pride thing. I don't want to look bad. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want you mad at me. It's self-love. Second, we see here that love, and we just saw it, love is expressed by righteous actions. So doing the right thing is doing the loving thing. And doing the loving thing is doing the right thing. But then third, it says in verse 10 that love does no harm. So anything that harms someone else is unloving and wrong. Now, Here's where the pushback comes, though. You say, well, you're harming me by telling me that I'm wrong. Or you're harming me by saying this isn't who I really am. But see, I don't, I don't think that statement disproves the point I'm making. I think it proves the point I'm making. Why? Because here's the thing. If I say you're wrong in doing something, or if I say this isn't really your identity, if I'm wrong, I would be harming you. But if I'm right, not only am I not harming you, I'm helping you. And so it still comes back not to feelings of love, but it comes back to what the truth is. Does that make sense? I mean, if you go to your doctor and you're all upset, and you've got some kind of health problem, and, and, and the doctor doesn't tell you what's wrong because he doesn't want to upset you, and you can't get treatment, and it ends up making you worse, that would be criminally irresponsible. If you go see a counselor who won't tell you the truth because they're afraid of upsetting you, that's wrong. If you came to see me, say a guy came to see me and he had a porn problem, and I, you know, I don't want to upset him or make him feel bad about himself. So I said, well, it's, you know, it's really okay. It's not that big a deal. Instead of helping him repent of it, I could be helping him ruin his life. The question is, what is true? Now, of course, the counter-argument is that if you don't affirm me in my identity, you're not respecting me, or, and therefore you're not loving me. Or if you don't use my pronouns, you're not respecting me, and to be disrespectful would be unloving. So let me respond to that in, in, in this way. My daughter Lily's 17. She's a senior in high school, uh, has a friend who uh, ad identifies as non-binary, had this come up with, uh, has another friend who like was pushing back on her about that. They had a conversation, uh, you know, it was in writing online, and Lily shared it with me. And so I just want to read you a couple quotes from this that I, I think are very helpful. And it just this is as real life as it gets. Okay, uh, I mean these are high schoolers. Her response was, "I purposely." purposefully disregarded her desire for me to refer to her by they-them pronouns by avoiding the need to refer to her by pronouns at all. 
because I think that playing into a false idea of the absolute truth of gender is contrary to the idea of loving her. I loved her, and I demonstrated that love in the ways that I could. Further perpetuating a lie that she is believing about reality as God created it would not be loving her. And then as they kind of discussed this, she said this, Love and respect are directly related. I both love and respect this person. Out of respect, when I saw this person, I saw a complex and capable human being rather than just the categories that she chooses to define herself by. Just like when I look at any other male or female friend, I don't just look at them and see he, him, or she, her. I see an intricate human being designed by God with value and purpose that goes far beyond their gender identity. The only difference in me interacting with this particular person who identifies as non-binary and any other friend who identifies as their sex assigned at birth is that, it, is that in expecting me to refer to her using, by using non-binary pronouns, this person was expecting me to actively affirm something that does not correspond with reality. My whole being wants her to feel loved and cared for. However, supporting an idea that does not correspond with reality is not being loving or caring towards someone. More so, it is helping cause more confusion and harm. I understand that this is an unpopular view, but I don't want to live in a world where, rea where reality is no longer the basis from which love and respect stem. True love and true respect will always stem from truth, and the truth is that which corresponds to reality. Now, follow-up from that, and, and this is something I'm going to quote from throughout the message. There's a man who used to be a member of True Life. Uh, some of you know him. He's a pastor in Washington now. His name is David Robinson. He wrote a book called Love Speech uh, that's about homosexuality that started as a letter to his sister who uh, lives a homosexual lifestyle and kind of turned into a book. And, and he said this. He said, if your child was a drug addict and a murderer, could you still love him fully even though you do not accept his lifestyle? Of course you could. Your love for your child is unconditional. It is not based on your child's actions. If your child is a drug addict and a murderer, he is doing things that are morally wrong and therefore harmful to him and others. Listen to this. He says, not only can you love your child and reject his lifestyle, but you ought to love him and you ought to reject his lifestyle. To accept a lifestyle that harms your child is not loving. Now you say, are you saying that murder and drug addiction is the same thing as identifying as binary or homosexual or whatever? Certainly not. That's an example. What I'm saying is the principle that you can love someone and affirm them as a person while rejecting their lifestyle, and that you not only can do that, but you ought to do that. That's what stands. If you love someone, you tell them the truth. Now, it doesn't mean, you know, you blow up on them, you reject them, you hate them, if they, uh, you know, choose to see the truth in a different way than you do. But you tell them the truth. Four. The truth that we're required to speak, at least in the context of this question, is that transgenderism and homosexuality are not identities, but morally wrong activities. Now, 
I would say this about any sexual expression. It's not an identity. It's an activity. And I say, why do you say this? Well, I say this because I believe the Bible, and I want to read some verses from Scripture. But I would also say this if I didn't believe the Bible because of natural law and what corresponds to the reality of the way that things are in nature. But look at what Scripture says. We read this verse before. We read it last week. But there was a part of it I didn't emphasize that I want us to come back to. Genesis 1.27. So God created man, literally mankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, that's what God's Word says. Does it correspond to reality? I'd say yes. It's not been questioned throughout uh, human history. I mean, and we still, women have XX chromosomes, men have XY chromosomes. Through DNA, you can identify if you're a male or female. Now, I know the argument is, and, and we're going to get to this in a minute, you know, that sex and gender uh, are different. But, but you understand that that idea is something called gender dysphoria. And until 2013, if you looked in the APA, American Psychological Association, DSM, it was listed as a mental disorder. Nothing scientific has changed since then. It came about because of lobbying efforts. Genesis 2, 23 and 24. Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, and this is God's definition of marriage, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's God's definition of marriage. You leave, you join together, then you consummate the relationship. You become one flesh. Does it correspond to nature? Does it correspond to reality that only a man and a woman can actually be one flesh? Say yes. Now, sometimes people say, well, you know, why didn't Jesus address homosexuality? Well, he did. Not directly, but you understand when you, in moral reasoning, when you state a positive as an absolute, you're negating then anything that doesn't line up with it. Here, here's, here's what I mean. Matthew 19, starting in, in, in verse 3, it says, The Pharisees came to Jesus. They were testing him. They asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for uh, just any reason? And, and when Jesus answered him, them, what he did is he went back and quoted what we just read. Now, I don't want to jump ahead to Dr. Aiken's message next week, but one of the reasons why we believe you take Genesis literally is because Jesus did. And if Jesus rose from the dead, and I believe that's what the historical evidence indicates, then we go with what he said. Here's what he said. He said, have you not read... Uh, which would have been in, like a slap in the face to the Pharisees who had this memorized. Uh, I mean, he's just he's brilliant. He's just turning it back on them. I mean, they're trying to trap him. He's like, well, have you not read? Don't you know that uh, he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So in that, Jesus d defined marriage and sex by quoting the Old Testament. Now, let me, let me say this before we talk more specifically about gender and homosexuality. I don't want anybody to think I'm 
picking on anybody uh, in, in any way here. Because the reality is, what Bible-believing Christians believe, because it's what Scripture affirms, that marriage is between one man, one woman, for one lifetime, in faithful, covenant, monogamous relationship. And so Christians would say then, that the way C.S. Lewis put it then, that the rule for sexuality is either marriage with complete faithfulness or complete abstinence. Now, talk about tough. Talk about unpopular. And, and so, again, what this boils down to is whether Jesus is going to be our Lord or not. We don't get to move the line to make people happy. Again, I'm saying this, though, because, well, I just read our statement of faith about sexuality. It says, we believe that sexual intimacy should only occur within a marriage relationship as described above. One man, one woman. We believe that any sexual intimacy occurring outside of this context is sinful and harmful. This includes, but is not limited to, fornication, pornography, incest, adultery, homosexual sexual intimacy, bisexual sexual intimacy, bestiality, bigamy, polygamy, polyandry, and any other sexual activity other than sexual intimacy between a man and a woman who are exclusively married to one another for as long as they both uh, shall live. And polyandry, in case you didn't know, I didn't, uh, I didn't know this at first, is a woman who's married to multiple men, which, uh, how can you put up with more than one man? But that's a di different, <laughs> different story. Uh, but uh, so, so what we're saying is, I mean, you can come up with a whole laundry list. The issue is one man, one woman in a covenant marriage relationship. And you say, well, but what if two people love each other and... Uh, I hope we've already learned that's not the issue. Again, you excuse anything by saying, I love somebody. Doing the loving thing is doing the right thing, and the right thing is what corresponds with God's law. But you say, you know, uh, doing what's loving is doing the thing that's helpful and not harmful. Well, how could two consenting adults, how can it be harmful? Well, listen to what. Pastor David says again, he says, When a person intentionally engages in sexual relationships outside of marriage, he is always treating his sexual partner as a thing, as an object to be used for his own personal pleasure. If he truly desired the best for the other person, he would not put the cart before the horse. He would make sure that he had given the level of commitment that is proper to a sexual relationship before he took the other person's body and sexual activity. We can all see how much damage fornication and a general lack of commitment is caused by the high number of fatherless homes in this world and the resulting harm often suffered by the children in these homes. Fatherlessness is killing us as a society. But think about abortion, too. You know, debating abortion laws and they ought to change. But do you realize, I mean, you can change laws, but if you don't change hearts and minds, somebody's just going to come along and change it back. What's the leading cause of abortion? It's uncommitted sex. And people want to erase the consequences of it. God's commands are for our good. He loves us. He wants what's best for us. He wants us to flourish individually and as a society. 
And life works right when we function according to His design. It works wrong when we go against His design. Now, let's talk about gender. I've already touched on it, but uh, I want to spend just a couple more minutes on it. But we want to start, I want you to watch a video. It's about four or five minutes long. And uh, it, it goes back a few years, and, you know, it's even more of an issue now. But just kind of think through uh, this video a little bit.
feelings don't make something real or true. I mean, do you see the level of absurdity in this? I mean, if you can't tell somebody, they're a grown man, that he's not a seventh grader and he doesn't get to go to first grade, there's a problem. I mean, what's the difference, you know, objectively in someone's height and their ethnicity or their gender? Or, or think about it this way, you know, in a lot of circles, if I came out and said I identified as a woman, that would be celebrated. But if I started identifying as a black man, I'd be accused of cultural appropriation and racism and, and be condemned for that. You say, would it be right to do that? No, I'm saying they're both equally ridiculous. <laughs> because they don't correspond to reality. And listen, once you start equating someone's feelings with reality, there's no stopping. It's like kids are running around identifying as animals. I mean, it could affect your kids. I mean, you know, little kids commonly have gender dysphoria. They're trying to figure all that out. But you say that to a doctor now. Doctors, uh, uh, doctors are being I've been told this by a doctor. They're being pushed in some circles to push them to have a sex change. As a child. And people say it's science. No, it's not science. People try to say, for example, science says there's no competitive advantage for uh, a man, you know, transitioning to a woman and competing with women. Really? How about this University of Penn swimmer that was the 462nd ranked man and just won a national championship as a woman? I mean... You take the best player in the WNBA and put her in the NBA or have her play one-on-one -on -one with the worst player in the NBA. Who's going to win? I mean, she could be more skilled at basketball than this guy, but a 6'8", 240-pound man versus, say, a 5'10", 140-pound woman, I mean, that's just a physical mismatch. God has made us different for perfect reasons. And it's just reality. And listen, the reality is, we can't create rights. Rights are given by God. And the problem is, when courts or legislatures or whoever start creating rights, when you create a right, you take it away from someone else. And that's what, exactly what's happened to these female swimmers. Now, let's think about homosexuality. Um, again, why would I say that it's not an identity, that it's an activity, and, and it's not a biblically acceptable, you know, morally acceptable activity? Just think about two or three reasons here. First of all, it's unbiblical. I mean, Leviticus 18.22 says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. In Romans 1, 24 through verse 27, it says, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the, the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. 
So that's what Scripture says. Even the Scripture said something uh, about uh, you know, gender. And again, with both of these things, we're all sinners. We're all tempted. Uh, one sin's not better or worse uh, than, than the other. And you know, we're not here to reject you. But we believe it would be harming you to say the opposite of what God says. You know, Scripture here says that it goes against nature. What does it mean for something to go against nature? It means it goes against God's design. It goes against the created order itself. Pastor David says in Love Speaks, he says, At the beginning of this book, I included the story of the emperor's new clothes. Imagine that little boy in the story being introduced to the concept of heterosexual and homosexual sex. He would blurt out what was obvious to everyone who is honest. Homosexual sex doesn't make sense. This is obvious and true. If not for the pressure put on people to accept this behavior, everyone else would say the same thing. Ask yourself these questions. If a man was supposed to have sex with other men, why would he be born with a body obviously designed to have sex with a woman? Why would he be given a body capable of producing children through heterosexual sex? The same questions apply to homosexual women. It goes against the clear design of the human body. He also quotes a nurse who says, I am a nurse, so I understand why homosexuality is wrong anatomically. There's no anatomic union between a man and a woman, or, or, or between a man and a man, or a woman and a woman. There are no parts that healthily fit in either sexual union. A woman and a woman do not fit together. In the sexual act, they stay outside of any union or find devices to simulate the natural sexual act between a man and a woman. A man and a man do the same thing. They simulate the union of man and woman by having a sexual act in an area of the body that is very uh, unclean and which ends up making it harmful. And the Bible says love does no harm. Now, Maybe the other question that really needs to be addressed here is people say, well, you know, it's not a choice. I was born this way. God made me this way and, and that kind of thing. What I would say is God is not going to design you in a way that he says is wrong. You say, well, okay, let's leave God out of it. What does science say? Well, think about it scientifically. If, if, if it was biologically predetermined. Wouldn't identical twins always have the same sexual orientation? What about when scientists did a study a few years ago to try to determine if there was a gay gene? And they said, no, there's not. Now, they, they would say it's, maybe there's some biological influence in it, which I don't have any pushback against that. But there's a lot of things that have biological influence in them. Being an alcoholic has some biological influence in it. doesn't mean you have to become an alcoholic. Listen to this. Maybe I'll listen to this more closely than anything else I've said. Um, this is from David Robinson again. He says, I sometimes have a strong desire to lie in order to cover up some wrong thing I have done. However, I do not choose to identify myself as a liar. In fact, I try not to lie because I have other thoughts and feelings that make me want to do what is morally right. People who have homosexual thoughts and feelings are not homosexuals in their essence. It is not who they are in any sense that necessarily must make up their identity. The fact that you have homosexual thoughts and desires does not mean that you must identify yourself as a homosexual. Even less does it mean that you must engage in homosexual sex. 
If homosexuality is unnatural, harmful, and therefore morally wrong, you should work to battle against any other thoughts and feelings that make you want to do immoral things. In other words, let's go back to what we read in Romans 13.9. Let's think about adultery for a second. You could be tempted to commit adultery. You could see an attractive person who's not your spouse and have some kind of feeling of desire, some kind of thought that pops in your mind. That does not make you an adulterer. That does not mean you have to act on that. He goes on and says, please pay attention here. There is nothing morally wrong with having thoughts and feelings that make you want to do what is unnatural and immoral. I myself and all other people have thoughts and feelings that make us want to do what is unnatural and immoral. Listen to me. The Bible calls that temptation. And we're all tempted. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's a sin to act on it. But at the same time, we don't have any right to judge people for a temptation that's not a temptation to us. We need to deal with our own struggles, not condemn people for things that they're struggling with. He says if you have homosexual thoughts and feelings, let go of any shame. For those of you who do not have homosexual thoughts and feelings, stop, stop trying to shame those who do. You're not any better than the person who has these thoughts and feelings. You would not want others to shame you for your personal immoral thoughts and feelings. In essence, what he's saying is, don't judge ourselves, don't judge other people for being tempted, but we don't have to identify ourselves or we don't have to act on our temptations. That's what he's saying. That's what Scripture teaches. Now, let me make, go back to Scripture and make two final statements to close. Number five is this. These things that we've talked about are not like the ultimate sins. Sometimes that's how the church treats them. But they are fruit issues, while the root issue is our sinful, rebellious heart. Go back to Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may, may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since uh, the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Then we read verses 24 through 27 uh, earlier, so let's skip ahead to verse 28. He says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Now I want you to notice this. In other words, we read some verses about homosexuality before, but that's not all he's talking about here. He says, Being filled with all unrighteousness. Sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, and unmerciful. So let's be real. We all make that list in multiple ways. 
And if that's not enough, he says, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who are practicing such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. In other words, he's saying, if we're like, you know, this isn't my thing, and, and I, don't, I don't really care what the Bible says, you do you, he's saying that that's sin too. And so notice the conclusion in verse 1 of the next chapter. And we know it's his conclusion because he says, Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. In whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. In other words, he's saying we have no right to condemn people for their particular sin because we're sinners too. But now, don't misunderstand me because a lot of so-called Christians twist this into something it's not. That doesn't mean that right isn't still right and wrong isn't still wrong. And we're, we're called to call right right and wrong wrong and speak the truth in love. You see, uh, it's judge, being judgmental in the sense of condemning someone is sinful because it takes the place of God. But Scripture tells us to judge in the sense of being discerning. But when I say uh, root issue, fruit issue, here's the point. The root issues that he talks about here, verse 18, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Verse 21, we fail to thank and worship and glorify God. Verse 23, we're spiritually idolatrous. Verse 25, we confuse creation and creator and live like we're our own gods. These are our heart issues. It just comes out of us externally in different ways. But the issue is the root, not the fruit. And according to the root, we're all sinners. Now, again, I think that's bad news, but it's good news, too, because we're all in the same boat. We're in this together. We're human beings made in the image of God. We're, we're sinners, and, uh, but God still loves us, so we ought to still love each other and help each other through this, however we sin. And then the last statement, though, is the greatest truth that we can speak is that Jesus is the ultimate answer because he forgives us and transforms us no matter what the fruit is, no matter what our sins are. If we fast forward to, to Romans chapter 3, you know, again, in Romans chapter 1, he said all are under sin, all are in sin. Romans chapter 2, he deals with self-righteous people. But in Romans 3, he says, verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but being justified means being declared righteous freely, and no cost to us because he paid the price by his grace, through his unmerited favor, through the redemption, the fact that on the cross Jesus bought us back from sin, whom God set forth as a propitiation. It means his atoning, wrath-absorbing sacrifice by his blood. He gave his life for our life uh, through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just. In other words, he might be righteous and uphold his law, but the justifier, he might declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. The, the message would be, it's whatever our sins are, repent, turn to Jesus Christ in faith. He'll forgive us, wash us, cleanse us, make us new, transform us, enable us to live anew in a different life. And remember, like we talked about last week, the identity that God wants us to have is in Christ. An adopted, accepted child of God. Let me close with this. I, I quoted uh, 
Rosaria Butterfield but before. Let me share a, a longer quote from her that I think just kind of brings this, all this together. And, and remember, she was a lesbian. She's a Christian now, written some books, that kind of thing. And there's a pretty well-known blogger, maybe some of you are familiar with her. Her name's Jen Hatmaker. And she was asked one time, do you think an LGBT relationship can be holy? And she said, I do. And she kind of went on, gave a little nuance, but that was her basic answer. It, but this is uh, Rosaria Butterfield's response to that. She said, if this were 1999, the year that I was converted and walked away from the woman and lesbian community I love instead of 2016, Jen Hatmaker's words about the holiness of LGBT relationships would have flooded into my world like a bomb of Gilead. I would have thought, yes, I can have Jesus and my girlfriend. Yes, I can flourish both in my tenured academic discipline, which was queer theory and English literature and culture, and in my church. Maybe I wouldn't need to lose everything to have Jesus. Maybe the gospel wouldn't ruin me while I waited, waited, waited for the Lord to build me back up after he convicted me of my sin and I suffered the consequences. Today, I hear Jen's words, and a thin trickle of sweat creeps down my back. If I were still in the thick of the battle over the indwelling sin of lesbian desire, Jen's words would have put a millstone around my neck. To be clear, I was not converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. I didn't swap out a lifestyle. I died to a life that I loved. Conversion to Christ made me face the question squarely. Did my lesbianism reflect who I am, which is what I believed then, or did it distort who I am through the fall of Adam? I learned through conversion that when something feels right and good and real and necessary, but stands against God's word, this reveals the particular way Adam's sin marks my life. And that applies to each and every one of us. Not one particular struggle or issue. She said, our sin nature deceives us. And that's exactly what you see on these students, who I'm sure are very intelligent people, on that video. Our sin nature deceives us. He says, when I came to Christ, I experienced uh, what a theologian by the name of Thomas Chalmers called, quote, the expulsive power of a new affection. At the time of my conversion, my lesbian identity and feelings did not vanish. As my union with Christ grew, the sanctification that it birthed, birthed put a wedge between my old self and my new one. In time, this contradiction exploded, and I was able to claim identity in Christ alone. And the message here for all of us would be, not about the fruit issue, it's about the root issue. It's about what's true and about who are we. It's, it's about a worldview. And, and, and here's the reality. Either you're the random product of time and chance and evolutionary processes and you have no soul and your life has no purpose. Or you're made by God, for God, in the image of God. And you have inherent value and dignity and worth. That image, yes, it's marred, it's, it's corrupted, it's affected by sin. It's like a broken mirror. But God still loves you to the point that he came and died for you. 
And all of us have to decide what we do with that and what we're going to base our life on. Again, the issue is not ultimately what our sins are. If you're not a Christian, I don't care about your lifestyle. The issue is the condition of our heart and the cleansing power of Jesus Christ. And are you willing to repent and trust Him and surrender to Him and let Him do a work in your life? Listen, if you are a Christian and you're struggling with whatever, we all struggle. It's not a sin to be tempted. Let's walk together. Let's help each other. There's people here that you can be open and honest with and, and, and we can walk together and we can help each other through this. Listen, uh, you know, as Christians... Um, there, there's an accountability that we have. But we're called to restore one another. The issue is not our sin. The issue is if we're rebellious and we won't live a life of repentance. That's really ultimately the issue. You know, something that my wife Robin, a wise lady like her daughter, said through the years, I mean, as we different family members friends, um, you know, that there's names and faces I have as I, you know, prepared this or teaching this. You know, she says something there's a lot of truth to. When it comes to issues like this, a lot of times the people, the response that people get from the church is just like this. Closed arm, they feel rejected, but in their community, arms are wide open. But I want you to understand that Jesus' arms are wide open all the way to the cross. And he loves you. And, and, and he wants to wrap you up in his arms of love. Listen, he's not going to accept you because of who you are. He'll accept you despite who you are. And that's his grace. And that's true for each and every one of us. Come to him. Listen, as a church... This is how our arms ought to be to whoever. But you've got to understand that real love includes speaking the truth. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and close with prayer. Encourage if you've got questions, submit them. Ryan, maybe just put that number on the screen for as we leave. If you want to talk afterwards, I'll be here. Pastor Phil will be in the lobby. There'll be other people around. If you're online, you connect with their host. But, but I just want to encourage you. Again, ultimately, the message is not about a particular lifestyle. It's about our heart condition. If you know that you're a sinner in need of a Savior... And maybe there's a particular sin you're struggling with, and, and, and you're like, I don't know how I could ever overcome this. I don't know what to do with this. Because right now, don't worry about your particular sin. The issue is who is Jesus and what he's done for you. And bring it to him. Let him forgive you. And we'll help you get that worked out. And it may not happen overnight, but he'll make you a child of God in an instant if you'll repent and trust in him and call on his name. Again, if you're a Christian, you might be struggling with something. You, just, you need to be open and honest with somebody. Listen, if, you, if you're struggling with, with gender identity, 
I know I've been pretty straightforward about trying to talk about what reality is, but we don't reject you if that's your struggle. We just don't want to help you justify it, but we'll love you, we'll talk with you, we'll encourage you, we'll do what we can to help you walk through that. Listen, maybe this isn't your struggle. But maybe if you're honest, you've rejected people, you've talked down to people, you've been mean that it is a struggle. If you're a Christian, you need to repent of that. Or some of you may be in, in, in a genuine and a good desire to, to love people. Maybe you've been soft on the truth, and you need to repent of that. I'm going to close this in prayer, but I just encourage you to call in the name of Jesus. Do what he's resp- telling you to do. Again, if you need to talk, come see us, get in contact with us. Father God, you are a God of truth. And Jesus, you said that God's word is truth. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. And you said that the truth will set us free. So I pray, I just ask that the Holy Spirit would take the word of truth, would set us free through it. Lord, Help us to humble ourselves, to repent, to trust you, to do with this what we need to. God, just give us grace, pour out your love in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, thanks for being here. Thanks for hanging in.